You're listening to Beyond the Ordinary, a show about the companies, founders, and ideas that are shaping the future of health, science, and financial technology. Here's your host, Tommy Martin. Well, hey, everybody. Welcome back to Beyond the Ordinary. We are so glad you're here with us today. We have a good friend of mine and mentor in a lot of ways in building a company. His name is Dave Corcoran, DC, as he goes by. And if you look at DC's LinkedIn profile, I love it. It says he is a builder of various things. And that is actually very true. He has built software companies, buildings, loves building into people. And I've been the benefactor of that in so many ways, as so many other founders have been. But he's also the founder of several startup companies, some of those in cybersecurity for over 20 years, large company called Census. We're going to talk about that today. He's also the founder of Trustbearer Labs. We'll talk about that as part of his story. And a father, husband, two small children, and they live on a small farm now in northeastern Indiana after exiting some of these companies. So, DC, we are so thankful you're here with us today. This is just going to be an awesome show because your story is just absolutely blows me away. Thank you, Tommy. I'm excited to be here. So, DC, again, thank you for being here today. And our listeners love hearing people's stories. So I definitely want to get to this part of how you get onto cybersecurity and built some of the leading tools in that industry. And now actually spend time teaching other entrepreneurs and students. And so we'll go through all that, but our listeners love hearing people's stories. And, you know, you probably didn't grow up thinking you were going to become this incredible software mentor and developer and founder. So take us back to the beginning of, you know, how you got where you are. Yeah, absolutely. That's awesome. So I actually grew up in Northeast Indiana, a small town called Cherubusco, just outside of Fort Wayne. We grew up on some acreage, had some cattle, you know, grew up very rural lifestyle. I really got interested in computers at a young age. And one summer I was detasseling corn for a summer and I made about $75, $90. I can't remember. And I bought a Tandy TRS-80 for $75 off of uh, the Peddler's Post. If you remember the Peddler's Post, you used to buy stuff off of that. And that's kind of how I got interested in computers. There's some guy that wanted to get rid of it. It was a 19, circa 1978 computer with 2K of RAM or something like that on it. And I brought it home and I learned how to you know, play games, write software, other sorts of stuff on it. I think I was about 12 or 13 years old at that time. And that's where my love of computers came in. Embarrassingly enough. So what's interesting is I ended up getting into cybersecurity. The earliest part I got into cybersecurity was I was a library helper in school and the person that was in charge of the library, she said, you know, we keep having these problems with these students that are screwing up these machines. And she's like, I just wish there was a way to, that I wouldn't have to deal with this. So I thought, you know what, I know how to use computers pretty well. So I wrote a piece of software that would make it where the students couldn't screw up the machine. So it was almost like a lockout, you know, where it would protect certain files and stuff like that. And that actually was an interesting thing because when I turned 15 and a half, I went and interviewed at Best Buy. And of course, I couldn't start till I was 16. But I ended up being the youngest computer tech at Best Buy that they hired, you know, <laughs> as a 16-year-old, which is crazy to think that they would hire a computer tech at 16. And one of the first things I did at Best Buy was I actually took some of that software that I had written in the library and used it at Best Buy. No way. I have to tell a story here. My youngest yeah. 
there was a point where my wife asked him one day, she said, you know, what do you want to do when you grow up? You know, are you going to be a policeman, a doctor, you know, all these things. And he said, I want to work at Best Buy so that I can see dad every day. And he had this perception that I was going to Best Buy every day because I was just a, you know, a geek that loved to go see what's the new tech that's happening. I never worked there. I was never, you know, never a coder or smart enough to do the tech, but my son said, I want to I want to work at Best Buy so I can see dad every day. I was like, oh man, I need to not go as often, but that's crazy. So you, you actually brought some of your software into Best Buy. Yeah. Cause we had the same problems at Best Buy. So, you know, kitty hackers or whatever you want to call them would come in and you'd have all these computers that were going up and down both sides of kind of the computer area that was back there. And people would, you know, change the screensaver to something profane or they'd delete critical system files, that sort of stuff. So I wrote something called the Best Buy Lockout Program. And uh, they ended up using it all over the region. It was really cool. All it did was just protect some of the critical files on the computer and lock out certain things so people couldn't do it. But I kind of realized, I didn't realize it for years later, that was kind of my first real cybersecurity thing that I kind of worked on, not even knowing that it was really cybersecurity at the time. And how old were you when you built the program at the library? I would have been 15 years old, 15 years old then, which is crazy. And then Best Buy, I would have been 16 when I did that. Okay. So being a computer tech, you know, you learned a lot about computers. So I was building computers at the time. This is in the mid 1990s. I think I built computers for several of my high school teachers, college professors, people in the dorms. That's kind of how I made money as a side hustle. then. of course, I couldn't compete with Michael Dell. But at that time, if you think about it, a computer was a couple thousand dollars. And so I could use parts. I could buy parts individually and probably build one for seven or $800 versus $2,000 and then sell it for $1,200 or $1,300. So it was a good deal for the people that were buying. They'd get a lot cheaper than what they'd get at the store. And then there was a good profit margin for me too. Of course, I didn't know anything about that stuff at the time. I was just doing it because it was fun, but it did help me pay for you know part of my freshman year of college, which is great. And then this is kind of the story. It'll take me a little bit to kind of go through this, but About two weeks into my freshman year at Purdue, I saw a sign on the wall and it said the ACM meeting. Hey, come check this out. And I went down there and I met a lady and she said, hey, I'm looking for somebody to be a web developer for Purdue Computer Science. And so I went down and talked to her because I was always looking for ways to make money. And so she gave me the job. I think I made $5.65 an hour at the time. I think it was pretty much close to minimum wage. But that wasn't the silver lining. The silver lining of it was that one day she said, hey, we've got corporate advisory council coming in and I really need someone to take these folks around and show them around campus. Would you be willing to do that? I was like, oh, sure. I'd be happy to do that. So I did that. And not knowing that I was going to be walking with the CIO, CTOs of, you know, like British Petroleum, you know, Microsoft, Schlumberger, et cetera. You know, you just don't have a context of how those situations don't happen <laughs> very often, especially when you're, what, 18, 19 years old at the time. So I did it. I showed them around. What I didn't realize was that was going to change my entire life because the people that I met there that day, I met the CIO of Schlumberger, which is you know one of the largest oil field services companies in the world. And uh, he asked me to be his intern that next summer as a result of that. So I got an internship working directly for the CIO of Schlumberger. And I had no idea what a big deal that was at the time, which is funny. And uh, the funny thing is, is actually my freshman year, 
I actually got flown to New York and I actually got to sit in a board meeting <laughs> for a publicly traded company as an intern. I think everybody thought it was super weird. But, you know, very briefly, I got to sit in this meeting and I was like, whoa, this is really odd. But it's one of those things where small decisions like that can impact your entire life. So my whole career, that is a pivotal point from my whole career, because one of the first things that Schlumberger had me work on is they said, hey, we just bought this company in France that makes these smart cards, these little computer chips. Now, this is 25 years ago. And here in the US, nobody had ever heard of any of this stuff, but they were using them in Europe and other places. And listeners, you can't see it, but Dave is showing me his credit card and he's showing me the chip in the credit card. You're familiar with these today. And he's saying, you know, 20 years ago, this company is buying into that type of technology that now today we use it day in and day out to either put our credit card in the thing or to tap it. And that's what Dave is holding up as he's talking. Sounds great. Yeah. So my boss at the time, CIO Schlumberger, he said, he was a big Linux guy. And he said, boy, do something with this. He got me a bunch of these smart cards and a bunch of the readers for the smart cards. He says, can you make these things work? I said, sure, I'll play around with it. And so I played around with it and I started writing software for it. And then he said, this is really cool. Let's make it open source. So we're going to give it away on the internet. I said, okay, that's interesting because apparently at that time, well, not apparently, I know this, everything was very proprietary. Like if you wanted to get the software for this, you'd have to pay tons of money for an SDK. It only worked on Windows, et cetera. So we put it online. We gave it away for free. <laughs> Lo and behold, that turned into a huge project. Within two years, everybody was using it. DirecTV was using it. Point of sale terminals were using it, you know, that you pay for in gas stations. The telecom companies were using it. It was like everybody was using this open source project because it was used in embedded environments. It was the only thing that was free and open source that was on the internet. So I made a big name for myself in college not even really understanding to the degree of what happened. So, you know, I was getting chased by different companies. I worked for Apple Computer in 1999-2000, actually met Steve Jobs at that time. And I worked on the keychain in Mac OS X and helping get cryptographic support in Mac OS X and supporting these devices. I worked for Sun Microsystems. I worked for Seagate Technologies. Department of Homeland Security hired me to be their consultant when it was first formed after 9-11 because they wanted to use this technology now for all employee IDs inside the US government. And so, so that one situation of agreeing <laughs> to go to that ACM meeting, taking that job as the webmaster led to me having this huge project and a name for myself around this smart card technology. So this is about 2003, 2004, we're living in Austin. I'm working for Schlumberger at the time. And I decided to kind of start another company and I'm doing a lot of consulting around the smart card technology around identity and credentialing and two-factor authentication and decide that I want to move back to Northeast Indiana and buy some land in Northeast Indiana. I still live here 20 years later. But when I came back, I went down to a place called the Northeast Indiana Innovation Center and the people there, they said, you know, Dave, you're kind of doing the same thing over and over for people. Maybe you ought to start a product company. I'm like, why would I do that? <laughs> I'm making good money as a consultant. And they're like, well, you know, maybe give it some thought. Maybe you could raise some money, you know, and start a company that way. So I gave it some thought and I said, okay, sure, I'll do it. They helped me put together my first business plan. I think I was in my early 20s at that point. And I raised, I think, $350,000 from some manufacturing folks in the Fort Wayne area, which is kind of interesting. And I started a company called TrustBear Labs. And that company was actually in the multi-factor authentication space. So when you log into the bank and you know you get that 
that digit code that comes back, that's called two-factor authentication. So it's one of the biggest attacks. So attacking login credentials is one of the biggest attack vectors in cybersecurity. And so adding two-factor authentication is huge. At that time, it still wasn't that important. We're talking 2006, 2007. But we had built this software for doing that. And we were working with large banks and government agencies and other sorts of stuff and selling that. And we got the interest of VeriSign. So VeriSign noticed, hey, there's this company in Fort Wayne, Indiana, that seems to be the only company on earth that's doing really, really strong authentication, two-factor authentication. That was the business that they were in. So they made an investment in us in 2008, and then they bought us in 2010. And so VeriSign operated in Fort Wayne, Indiana for a couple of years. We ended up being Symantec because VeriSign sold to Symantec. And I did that for a couple of years. And then I did my time there and I decided, you know what? I'm not into corporate life. And I kind of wanted to shift gears for a little bit. And so I, I took some time off. I did some crazy things. You know, I decided I was going to get into corporate real estate. So I worked on an old building in downtown Fort Wayne, turned it into apartments and coffee shop. I started an indoor shrimp farm at that time too. So I thought it would be a, a good idea to try to grow shrimp indoors. That did not turn out so well. But we also tried working on an aquaculture software company to manage the shrimp farm <laughs> at that time too. So I kind of got involved in a lot of things and was doing a turnaround for a company called Our Sunday Visitor. So I was helping them acquire companies in the software space, as well as helping them turn around a struggling software company that they had purchased that was doing church websites and management software. So I was kind of stepped in as interim CEO of that company and turned that one around. So I decided I was going to do everything at once. About 2014, my daughter was getting born, but we found out that my wife had cancer and it was a very rare form of thyroid cancer. And so we were faced with the decision of, you know, whose health do we risk? Is it my daughter's health or is it my wife's health? And I would say that that was a big turning point. And my wife would tell you for me as well, that I realized that I can't do all this stuff and be a good husband, father, et cetera. And so at that point, I took some time off and really focused on my wife. You know, we ended up getting her taken care of up at University of Michigan. We were able to suppress the cancer down to the point that she was able to give birth to our daughter, Audrey. And then she was able to get her surgeries and chemo and radiation shortly thereafter. You know, while that was kind of a dark time, you know, during of all the things that was happening, it was the first point in my life that I actually realized what was important in life. I would say that I didn't really understand what was important in life before that. It was always getting to the next level and not necessarily making more money, but it was just, I did not put family first until that point. So although it was a dark moment, it's a very important moment in my life. So, you know, we kind of hunkered down for a couple of years and then kind of once things started improving a bit, I decided I was time for something else. And what I did is I drew a five-hour radius around Fort Wayne, Indiana, which is my hometown. And I said, okay, I don't have a great idea right now, but I'm going to visit every research university around this area within five hours. Started talking to professors, tech transfer groups, et cetera, and ultimately ended up at University of Michigan and found a technology called Census. So Census is a technology where we basically scan. We know everything that's on the internet. So think of it as like Google of every device on the internet. And so we scan every device on the internet multiple times a day, which is a really, really hard problem to do. And a lot of it's for security research. So at the time when my co-founders started working on this, 
it was about any time a major vulnerability would happen, we could tell exactly who was affected by it. So we could say, hey, 27% of the internet is affected by this. We could break it down by country. We could break it down by state. We could even tell you some companies that were affected by this and the hosts that they had. So, so I said, wow, that's a hard problem to solve. So I stepped in in leadership role there, spun that out of University of Michigan in 2017 with my co-founders. And we launched census.io. We came out of the gate hot. You know, we were selling data contracts. It was both a blessing and a curse. So it was like we had been giving this data away for free. So coming out of the gate, now we're trying to charge people 100 grand for data that they're getting free just a few weeks earlier, a few months earlier. But so led through that transition and uh, started building the team there. I would say Census was an amazing experience and ride for me because it was my first true venture-backed company. So Census was backed by Google Ventures and Greylock and Decibel, which is you know a spin out of Cisco and now Intel Capital as well. So you know we took a lot of money from some A players, and you know they expect you know kind of some big returns as a result of that. So built the team quick, started getting involved in an area called attack surface management, where basically we could look at a company's out from the outside and we could determine what their vulnerabilities were and kind of what their misconfigurations were. So that company grew really, really quickly. Headquartered in Ann Arbor, but we're all over the place. We've got locations all over the world now too. So I did that for about three and a half years and then also kind of decided that it was time for me to be more present as a parent and a father and a husband. And uh, so I was able to transition out of that and hand that over to my COO, who then ended up becoming CEO of that company. But boy, did I learn a lot in that company. I would say that one of the big things that I learned was that there's a different pace when you think about self-funded versus venture-backed companies and primarily like larger VC companies, the pressure in terms of speed is very different. So I think about like the self-funded companies that I had in the past were more like a step function. I describe it where it's like, okay, you go make some sales, you hire a couple of people, you go make some sales, you know, and it just kind of goes like this. Whereas, you know, when you take money from some of the tier one venture capitalists, you know, which is great. You know, it's much more like, you know, grow as quickly as you possibly can. So spend a lot of money, hire a bunch of people, and then go and try to produce the results as a result of that. And that brings a whole slew of challenges from a company perspective. I do some work for Purdue University for a venture studio around agriculture technology companies. And our fellows this morning play this game called the Wheel of Misfortune. And in the Wheel of Misfortune, one of the things that we do is we talk about all the challenges that you have being a CEO founder. So a lot of people think that it's this you know, amazing, glamorous job and it's so great to own your own company and that sort of stuff. And, and it is. But there's a reason why CEOs get paid a lot of money, that there's a lot of hardships that they have to deal with. So we played a game. We had a little wheel that went around and I'd come up with like 36 scenarios that I had come up that I had faced, you know, over the last 20 years of like massive challenges that happen. And it's like one of the things we were trying to do is say, hey, what would you do in this situation if this happened? And it was a lot of fun for the fellows. It was a lot of fun for me. So DC, what were some of the scenarios that came up? What are some examples? Oh, you know, a lot of number of ones. So for example, actually the first one that came up on the Wheel of Misfortune had to do with your chief revenue officer makes a disparaging and offensive political statement on Twitter, causing a firestorm against them and the company. What do you do? And this is very, very challenging in today's environment. It doesn't matter. Forget politics and political spectrum, et cetera. These are problems you have to deal with as a founder today, is that there is this balance between people's personal opinions and how they bring themselves to work and how 
backlash, public backlash can be to a corporation, even for people's personal opinions. And it's a very tough line to walk as an executive. I came from kind of the background of that I prefer that we don't have those conversations at work, that those are conversations that we should have in our own privacy, et cetera. But there's a number of employees that don't like that. They believe that you know your politics should be part of work. And so we had a long conversation about how do you deal with that? And I think a lot of that comes back to setting expectations up front. Like this is what the company accepts and this is what it won't accept. Like there's certain values, you know, that we adhere to. And so that was an interesting, we had a lot of conversation on that. We had another one where we had, (laughs) you know, a company was basically at the end of the month, we realized that we're three months from being out of cash. And, uh, you know, what do you do in that situation when you realize that your forecasting hasn't gone well and your performers are now showing that you're going to run out of cash in three months Another one is, you know, board of directors demanding you make a product pivot that you strongly disagree with. We had some related to, you know, working from home situations where you estimate that some of your employees might be working second jobs and they're not giving you 100% based on their LinkedIn profiles. Here's another one. A third of your employees threaten to quit if you ask them to return to the office two days a week. (laughs) So it's just a fun list of all these problems that could come up. But we had a lot of fun, you know, kind of going through some of these and I I, I enjoy it. But the whole point of it is it's that these are the things that as a founder and CEO, you will face these things. And in fact, there's a lot of the job that is this, and you have to be mature enough to not let this eat away at you because it is just part of the job. And the better prepared you can be for it, the better you are. You know, the moral of the story at the end, you know, when I was done with the fellows, as I said, listen, know what you don't know. Like as a first-time founder, all of you are first-time founders, know what you don't know and surround yourself with the people that fill those knowledge gaps. And that's why I'm always telling founders, have an advisory board, like absolutely have an advisory board of people that can help fill those knowledge gaps. Absolutely. And, you know, DC, just to interject one thing, if I were to summarize a lot of our training in the program for leadership development at Harvard Business School, it really came down to this that the best leaders are going to be disappointing at least 30% of their constituents. That leaders that try to keep everybody happy, in fact, they get absolutely nothing done. And the leaders that do a really, really good job, really good job, where we look back historically and we say, wow, they were such an outstanding leader, at least 30% of their constituents, whether this is a CEO or a president, a governor, whatever it may be, at least 30% of their people were pretty disappointed in their performance. So those of you out there as founders, you know, Dave's talking about my life as well. It's really hard. You have to make a lot of decisions that aren't going to be popular. In fact, part of your role as a leader is to make as few decisions as possible If you're doing a really good job, you're trusting your people to make most of the decisions. That means you're making the really, really hard ones and you're not going to make people happy all the time when you have to make those really, really hard decisions. That's just part of the job. It's part of how it works. So Dave, I appreciate you sharing that. Nobody's articulated it quite that well. And I think it's helpful for people to hear like, this is not all rosy. And then even after you make these hard decisions, You better believe it. Absolutely. I go back and I still question, did I make the right one? Because they were hard for a reason. 
I was just going to say, I think one of the challenges that I've faced in being CEO a few times now is that questioning of decisions. And like you said, 30% of those employees may not like you. Sometimes I would find myself worrying about that stuff too much and losing sleep. And it becomes a vicious cycle. So that's one of those things that you've got to be really good at breaking yourself out of that stuff is a understanding the fact that not everybody's going to like your decision and you've got to make hard decisions and move on and B not dwelling on past decisions, understanding that with the context you had at that time, you made the best decision that you could at that time and you've got to move on. There's been some great research that's actually come out and listeners, this may surprise you, but some of the most effective companies, what they found was it mattered less that they made the right decision. What mattered more was that they could make decisions. And then once you've made the decision, you make the best of it. And sometimes that means you have to completely backtrack or pivot or whatever it may be. Other times it means you made the best decision you could, you make the most of it. But the companies that actually get out and are more successful, it turns out it matters less they made the optimum decision and it matters did they just make decisions. And the companies that floundered more often were the companies, the leadership team, the management They just could not make decisions. They're trying to make everybody happy. They can't make decisions. And as a result, they end up not gaining traction, not hitting milestones, not getting funding, on and on and on. They have worse results. That's a really good point. I would say that entrepreneurs, people that were founder CEOs during the pandemic probably struggled quite a bit with this. I can tell you that I did as well. There was a lot of situations where you would normally be able to make very quick decisions on things. But during the pandemic, especially within that few months that's afterwards, it was very difficult to determine whether or not problems that were happening with certain individuals were pandemic related or were they truly performance related. And as a leader, you were trying to give plenty of leeway to your employees during that time. And I would say that, you know, myself included, definitely myself included, that was a challenging time because normally I would try to make very, very quick decisions and decisive decisions. But during that time, I was trying to give more people the benefit of the doubt because everybody was really, you know, struggling, you know, during that time. Yeah. There was mental health. There was long COVID. There was just fear. Fear. Of the unknown and everybody was being impacted so differently. And you didn't know the person that I'm talking to today, have they lost a loved one because of this? Or has this been very little impact to them? Or has their spouse lost their job? I mean, on and on and on. It was a really, really difficult time to lead. And boy, I saw in some of the companies that I was a part of, I saw it impact people very, very differently. Some people ended up doing things I think they would have never normally done in a typical situation and yet became career changing for them. Very difficult. So I appreciate you sharing that as well, that almost the moment you figure out how to lead, then a pandemic changes all the rules. It does. In fact, I was struggling so much with it because... You know, I love being in front of an audience of people. It's one of the reasons why I like to teach so much is I love that visual feedback of you can look at people's faces. You can see, are they getting it? Do they enjoy it? Do they disagree with me, et cetera? And you can kind of massage your message around trying to capture the most audience as possible. So it was so crazy. I was so burnt out from not 
having that in-person interaction at census when I was running census that in September of 2020, I decided to take a road trip and I was going to visit every single one of my employees on their front doorstep. So I drove to Pittsburgh. I drove to DC. I was all over Michigan, you know, Indianapolis, different areas all over the Midwest. And I told any of my employees, I will meet with you outside on your front porch if you're comfortable with that. And I did that because I just wanted to be in front of people and I wanted to see, I wanted to see them face to face. Listeners, there's such a great example of going beyond the ordinary. I can assure you most leaders did not take that step. Certainly I was not one that did that. And looking back, I'm like, wow, what a great example of leadership in action. And so, you know, you're hearing it from a guy that just lives it. I appreciate that. I really just wanted to see people. <laughs> it was it was really it was really along the lines of I could tell that the working from home people had lost connection. There's certain connections you just can't get over Zoom, and I wanted to try to reestablish that. So I wanted to do something different. I realized that with working with all these startups over the years. There was a lot of knowledge that was trapped up in my head that I take for granted that first-time entrepreneurs don't know or they don't have that context or experience. And I decided that I wanted to shift my life into spending more time helping people that are beginning that journey. And so about a year ago, I started talking to Purdue and they said, hey, we're going to start this venture studio around the ag tech space and you know, working on food sustainability and agriculture. Would you like to join and be the entrepreneur in residence for that? And I said, absolutely. I also started working with Trine University who said, hey, would you come and teach some of our seniors, you know, some of the experience that you've got? And I said, absolutely. I'd love to. And I'm having a blast. Like I absolutely love this. And you don't realize... Like with these students, like the stuff that you take for granted, like even like, hey, you ask somebody to a meeting and they ghost you, like, what do you do? Like as a senior in college, you don't know what to do. You don't know what the norm is in that situation. It seems so obvious to me, like what you do in those situations. But I want to be able to transfer some of this knowledge to the new generation of entrepreneurs and student entrepreneurs. And so that's where I'm focusing my attention now. You know, someday I might have another startup. I might, I probably will. I've got people that I talked to, a couple of them today, they have great cybersecurity ideas they want to launch. But right now, I think this is the right place and mission for me to do personally. Well, I'm certainly a benefactor and mammoth as well. You know, another example of it seems so easy to you, yet to someone else, they just totally miss it. I was working through my bridge deck with Dave. We're raising a very quiet round of capital at Mammoth. Probably will have it done by the time this episode comes out. But, you know, we walked all the way through it. We get to the end and Dave says, wait a minute. Are you telling me the software is already built and you're already using it? And I'm like, well, yeah, we already have $100 million on the platform. He's like, okay, you need to mention that at the beginning, not at the end. And, you know, so basic for him. And yet, because I was just in the day-to-day, I just completely missed that really important point of like, no, you better lead with, this thing's already built, we're already doing really well. Don't bring that at the end or assume that people already know that. So another, just such a simple thing should be, and when you're in the thick of it, a lot of these things aren't quite as simple. And so having an outside perspective, having someone at the table that's been through it before, that can just see those things immediately and coach you through it is just incredibly valuable for whether it's a student or a founder, a multiple time founder on another company. There's just things you miss along the way. So 
Sounds good. Like I said, I love helping. I love these types of stories. You know, there's a handful of companies in the area. I've helped them do their fundraising rounds and uh, it's just cool to see it succeed. It's cool to see people succeed and it's cool to, you know, say you were part of it. So a few years ago, 2014, I was part of a company called Paradeck and Paradeck was an education technology company. And I was super interested in it because what their mantra at the beginning was they wanted to give every student a voice. They would show this example of, you know, there's always like two or three kids in every class. It's like always, you know, sucking the air out of the room and they want to give every student a voice. So I, um, was, you know, on the original board of directors, one of the original investors in that company and kind of helped them all the way up to series A. And that company did amazing during the pandemic. So they were effectively a remote education company, but they were focused on making sure that everyone got attention. And so when the pandemic happened, they did extremely well. And, you know, even though I was kind of quietly involved at the beginning of the company, it just felt good to be part of that and to see something that you helped kind of bring to fruition, be successful and also like help society in a way. I mean, by the middle of the pandemic, Paradeck was in mass use across the United States for helping students do interactive learning online when schools were shut down. It was like, boy, is this fun. It's so cool to be part of this. Well, I love your passion for people, Dave. That's something we led with at the very beginning, you know, a builder of various things not just companies. You really do care about the people behind those companies. I've gotten to see it over and over and again. That's what makes it so easy to be a friend with this guy. And it's a great segue into my favorite part of the show where I get to ask you two questions. The first is the question everybody wants to know. And actually, it's the question I want to know. And then the second is the actual question everybody wants to know. So my question today is, I know there's a backstory behind the name DC, and I want to hear it. (laughs) it's interesting so you know i used to complain you know back 20 years ago there's too many daves i think i'd be in the room there you're dave you're dave i'm dave c you're dave whatever and my employees they used to make fun of me they used to always say they'd be like you could take dave out of indiana but you can't take the indiana out of dave because we had employees in washington dc and stuff like that i'm like what do you guys mean by that and they were like well you're the digital cowboy I'm like, well, what, what is a digital cowboy? And they're like, well, you're like this farm guy, cowboy guy, but you also are a software developer, that sort of stuff. And so they kept calling me the digital cowboy and then they just shortened it to DC. So it just stuck. So I just kept going from DC at that point. So DC does not mean Dave Corcoran. It means no. digital cowboy. I it means digital it. cowboy. <laughs> that is going to stick for me as well. And Dave, it reminds me of a quick story I'll share. So I had taken over as the leader of a company in St. Louis, Missouri. And, you know, I'm in Indiana here. And so we're proud to be Hoosiers. And in St. Louis, Missouri, I didn't realize this. But it is a terrible thing to be a Hoosier. I'll tell you the story in a second. (laughs) And so what was so great about it, though, is our employees could call me a Hoosier and I'd be like a term of endearment. I'd be so thankful. And they would be like saying, you're an idiot or, you know, we don't like you or whatever. And the backstory is this. Apparently, there was a time in St. Louis when the beer manufacturing plants where the beer workers went on strike. And so instead of dealing and negotiating, the beer companies just bust people down from Indiana to St. Louis, Missouri (laughs) to take these jobs. And when they did, they rented houses and all these things and they took people's jobs 
And then finally, once it was all over, the Indiana Hoosiers, they left. They went back to Indiana. They didn't pay their rent as they were leaving. So they became Hoosiers. And it became a very derogatory thing from a Missouri perspective because they took our jobs. They lived in our places. They didn't pay us rent. I mean, is it terrible to be a Hoosier? So I was that Hoosier at this company in St. Louis and didn't know until late in the job that when someone was saying I'm a Hoosier, it was not a positive thing. (laughs) That's funny. That's a great story. Well, that takes us to our final question that I'm sure some listeners want to know is uh, we do have a fair amount of founders or would-be founders that tune into the show. And I know you have a passion for supporting first-time founders And if one of them would like to reach out and get in touch with you, what is the best way for them to do that? Yeah, absolutely. I appreciate that. Yeah, I have a tremendous passion, especially helping first-time founders. It can be a very lonely role. It is a lonely role your first time, especially if you don't have people that you can lean in on. I usually tell people to reach out to me on LinkedIn. So I'm pretty easy to find on LinkedIn. If you look for David Corcoran Census, or it's usually a pretty good way to find me. David Corcoran, you'll probably find me at some point. I'm the guy with the long hair. I haven't always had long hair, but you'll find me on there. But please just connect with me on LinkedIn. Then usually we'll chat over email and set up a Zoom and kind of go from there. And listeners, we'll put that LinkedIn in the show notes. So whether you're listening on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcast, check out those show notes. We'll try to give you a link right to DC's profile where you can just click on it and get right to them. So DC, this has just been absolutely incredible. I really appreciate you joining, spending the time to do it. You've been a great friend, great mentor. I'm so excited to continue to go on this journey with you and listeners It's a journey with you as well. We could not do this show without you. You have made this just way beyond my wildest dreams. I can finally admit it on air. I fought my team. I did not want to do this show. When they asked me to, I said no repeatedly. I finally said yes. Didn't enjoy it for the first 30 episodes or so. And now I absolutely love it because I get to talk with people and have just embraced that we get to have fun and I've taken the pressure off myself. So listeners, that's all because of you. The way you've embraced it has made it easy for me to embrace it. So thanks for doing what you do. If you like our show, please make sure you hit the five star button or whatever you're listening to, the like button. And that helps us get the word out and pass it along to a friend. If this is an episode that resonates, please make sure you share that out really helps new listeners find the show. So thanks for being awesome. And we'll see you right back here next week on Beyond the Ordinary. Thanks for listening to this episode of Beyond the Ordinary. This podcast is brought to you by Mammoth and produced by Reverb. If you like this show, consider sharing it with a friend. You can subscribe to future episodes in Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. For more information about Mammoth and Beyond the Ordinary, visit us at mammoth.vc.